Welcome back to From Start to Scale with Alex Newman, where founders, CEOs, sales leaders, investors, and the best of the best share their strategies and tactics, how they scaled their business and broke through the next level. Hear what worked and what didn't so you can avoid critical mistakes and scale your business. Now let's get into it. Today's guest is Afif Khoury, founder and CEO of Soshi, a marketing platform for multi-location brands. They've raised over $235 million in funding. They're a five-time Inc. 5000 fastest growing companies in America. Afif knows his stuff inside and out. He's been an investor on, uh, on that side as well as a manager in two successful VC funds. Excited to have you here. Welcome to the show. This is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, Alex, thanks for having me. Sixth time, by the way, now. <laughs> Sixth time. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to update my notes here. No, that's it's, even better. It's new news. So no, Hel- no helps idea. for recruiting, which is, which is the, which is the mm-hmm. name of the game these days. So, where I want to get started is, so you started the company. I mean, this is now going on 11 plus years. If if we can go back in time a little bit, let's jump in our time machine. But you start the company, you're going through all the natural like, hey, I need to figure out product market fit. Can you give just a quick high level context as far as what you guys do, but then also help me understand like, how did you guys find product market fit or what were some of the signals that you thought you had it? Yeah, man, this is, this is first of all, the, the 11 years, what a blur. You know, the first 18 months or so, we're probably just building the product. And and the product was built very specifically for a, a brand use case. We were coming out of another company and we were approached by some of our clients there who wanted to know if we could do that thing for them. At the time, it was like a sweepstaking contesting platform on social media if we could do that across their 18,000 locations. So think of like a McDonald's or a Starbucks or a Burger King, you know, a brand that really transacts its revenue locally across many, many locations. And so at the time, social media really hadn't gone local to that level, but, but search had. And so it was a bit of a forward thinking brand, but it sort of planted the seed with us of whether, you know, whether this didn't make sense, like there's a word of mouth platform. If every business is going to be on there, all the consumers are on there. How would you manage as a brand suddenly, not just your one page where 10 million fans have have liked you, but now 18,000 page where each one has 300, 500 fans. Uh, And that's a, that's a very unique, but very complex problem. And we sort of, we built ahead of our time because, because that problem hadn't arrived, but we saw it coming. And we built for that brand use case and took us about a year and a half because at the time, Facebook and other social networks did not have APIs for this. And so it was kind of a hobby project. Like, hey, is this thing coming? If it comes, it would be really, you know, require a really sophisticated solution to to attach it. And so my co-founder and I were kind of part-timing it for a year and a half, building it, watching the evolution of the market. And then, and then seeing things start to go local, which gave us, you know, the energy to continue. By the time we went to market, which for us was, hey, go back to those brands and say, hey, by the way, remember that problem you told us about? We've got it. They pretty much told us to pound sand. I mean, like the 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 brands were so scared of this notion of having to go local across eighteen thousand locations that their first reaction was, let's ignore it. The second reaction was like, let's shut it down. Let's build a team to just shut all these pages down. And, and so the, so after a year and a half of building, we were kind of like, oh my God, like what just happened? And we had to pivot and find a buyer. We had to find a customer for this. We put a lot of energy into it. And so we found the agencies, the agencies who were trying to manage SMBs, 
And, you know, this new thing, social business on social is coming up and they needed a way to manage, you know, hundreds, thousands of, of local locations without, you know, to, to maintain some margin. And our platform was the answer. So that was the first pivot. We built it for one group, but we had to go service another. And then we pivoted. We, we, we then added another vertical, which was property management, management companies that are managing thousands of apartment buildings, you know, and we kind of were just waiting it out. And then and the brands came around like they, you know, I feel like in some ways they're they're not they're they're slow movers. But that's how our ICP was defined. Who We built for God. Looking back, I think I would have done a much better job on those type of customer interviews and making sure that the problem was really there. We knew it was there. We knew it was coming. But those adoption curves can can really kill a company if you're too early sometimes. So luckily we pivoted, we found um, some some verticals to go after, find some early revenue. Wasn't really, you know, year one of commercialization was agency, year two was property, it was kind of year three and beyond that we got the brands back in there. And then, you know, and then the rest kind of is, is history. But that was our initial ICP, our initial go to market. Interesting. So, so, so initially- do I, do I have this right that you actually ended up pivoting back into the original one? You just kind of had to like, hold off for long enough until the brands that you were your initial hypothesis was correct on you just had to wait a little bit yeah i think that's fair i think it was more of a, a wait than a pivot at that point because we didn't have to build anything new for them um and i think the agency and the property management now we have a, a number of verticals that don't cleanly fit under these sort of multi-location brands but they all would have come as well at some point. It, you know, it sort of made sense that there was a bigger use case than we initially even thought. It just wasn't the first use case we were thinking about. So, you know, hmm. I'm glad there was an option B and an option C, yeah. um, even though I hadn't thought of an option B or C, but I'm glad it was there. Yeah. Um, going forward, I think I would always think of the several options in the several markets. If one is not ready, you know, where the next ones might be as well. That makes sense. So when when you talk about how these these brands came back around, what exactly does that mean? I mean, are you do you have a a sales team that's essentially saying, "Hey, you, hey guys, stay on this." You know, are you are you kind of you you bet the house on, "Hey, I think that the bigger brands cuz they're going to be able to pay you more, obviously a bigger company, they're going to have the, you know, 10, 12, 15, 18,000 locations." Like, how did they just naturally come back back around yeah. in order for you to have those conversations? You know, we kept banging the drum, but I don't really think we're, the, we're what brought them around. I think the market brought them around, right? So you had Web 1.0 and the whole search movement. And then Web 2.0 came with all of social and reviews. But then somewhere, you know, at some point, the businesses jumped on social, right? It wasn't just the consumers. And when the businesses got there, the initial reaction, again, for these brands was, shut them down, shut them down. But at some point, the noise got really loud and all the engagement from the consumer side went down and across all the all the local pages. And if you were a marketer at that point and your strategy was to shut them down, you, you were writing yourself out of a job. Right. You, you now were in a new sort of era of digital marketing and you had to deal with social media and, and then reviews as well. So I think it was that just market wave. We were very at the very beginning where the wave was forming, and then and eventually it sort of turned into a wave that all the marketers saw and realized they had to be on. But the good news is we were there. We were evangelizing that. We were talking to them. So when it did come, 
you know, we started to get the brands in and we didn't necessarily hire people and say, hey, wait for the brands. We hired people to go after the 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 verticals and the 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 ICP, the customers that we knew were buying our product. But when the brands came along, we just were able to hire up and hire more. Interesting. So, um, yeah. And that and really the other vector of growth here. So we, we had the, you know, we had the verticals and our customers, but then we had the products because we started in social. But as I just mentioned, reviews also became really hot. Search became hot. Ads went local. Like almost every type of digital marketing they were doing ended up having the same shift and momentum of, well, the consumers want to engage with that, but locally. And so our platform kept evolving in that direction as well, which is to add more products, more channels, more networks that they could engage with, which gave our sellers more products to sell. Did did you have competition at this time? I mean, all of a sudden, I mean, obviously you see this in the future, you stay afloat for long enough, all of a sudden the brands come and we can dig into sales and how you actually were able to bring on the initial customers and that type of thing. But sure, the market came around to it. Are people searching for you or was were there other market players that were kind of helping you create this market? I mean, usually I, I look at it and go, if you're the only one, sometimes I wonder like, are you just that early or is there a reason that nobody else is wanting to do this? Yeah. Well, the wanting to do this part, if you think about going from managing one Facebook page to potentially 10,000, you got 10,000 reasons to not want to do it. Like it's, it's, it's a heavy burden. And so it's not until you're forced to that you really have to. As far as the competition, so it turns out that MarTech has a few players. I think the last grid I saw was like 11,000 solutions. Just a few. Um, and we had been coming out, if, if, you're a, if you're a sort of history buff of this stuff, of this sort of point solution era. Like, let me get a solution for that and a solution for that and a solution for that. And so they were trying to tackle this by using seven different logins and, and putting that in the hands of a hundred different local managers and saying, hey, help us out, respond to reviews with this one, post on social with that one, update your search content on this. You can imagine the adoption levels they were getting. Sure. But to them, they were, they were patching solutions. They were doing what they could. So we had competition in that every channel had a host of point solutions that were well known. You're talking about the Hootsuites and Sprout Socials and, and just just some legacy platforms that, have, that, that are well known at that time, still are. And so we're the new guy coming in saying, hey, you could do all that on, on Sochi. And, and we do it just as well as all of them. And so it wasn't easy because no, we weren't the only one. We had a more unique story because we were literally built for multi-location, but they had now been sort of on another platform for a while using it. So we had to get good at replacing something. It wasn't very often that it was just greenfield or they, they didn't have a solution. Well, let's dive into that a little bit, because I think that's, I mean, that's a, that's tough, right? When you start to say, Hey, some of these, these MarTech players are very well funded, many of them, and they do not like to let their contracts not get renewed. And, you know, there's, there's the, Hey, rip them out and replace them with us as well as we'll rip out a, a couple other tools and just replace with just us, which is a value prop, but very, very difficult. And then on top of it, I mean, you look at some of the brands and some of the customers you have, these aren't SMBs anymore. These are bigger players that have more compliance. They have more integrations that they require. They got people all over. They got all kinds of weird little asks and things as well as, most of these guys don't ever want to go first. 
right? They'll go 10th, but they don't want to go first. How did yeah. you, I mean, obviously there's a bunch of questions in there, but like, let's start to kind of unpack that. Like how, how'd you get that first one? How'd you, how were you able to kind of fight your way through there? Yeah. Yeah. Look, it has to start. You do have to have truly a better system, a better platform, one that has more of the features that they need to run their business. So let's assume you have that, which, which we did, then it's convincing them of that. And, and the first logos, it's hard when you don't have a sheet of logos to convince them. And they're one of the first. So you really bring them under the tent. I mean, you really partner with them. You get to know them. You build a relationship. You prove it out to them. You ask them to give you just a few pages. You ask them to let you know, let let you sort of show them how it works. So um, we had to do a lot of that early on. And the the good news is that the point solutions for for what we're doing cause a ton of pain. So there really was a ton of pain there. So it was you know they were dying to find a better solution just a bit weary if there was one. But as soon as you can prove that to them, and then, you know, once you get the first brand and the second brand, especially if they're recognizable, it starts to get easier. And then it flips. And then right now, if you ask me, would I rather see them have a budget, but be, be you know, a customer of somebody else and have to replace that person or not have a budget and create one, I'll take the, I'll take the budget that I just have to move because because we're confident in the value proposition and the feature set versus, you know, especially these days, right? For the last three years, creating brand new budget as a marketing department is, is quite difficult. Yep. That's very challenging. So when you, when you think about in the early days and you're starting to capture some of these customers, you know, you're, you're get you're getting your meetings and people are like oh my god this is so cool right this is so awesome and you can put it all together and i can get rid of all these tools how did you overcome multiple tools that some of these players probably were pretty big so you got two and three year contracts how did you overcome that from a sales perspective if like were people saying hey we'll just put this on the shelf and then we'll just go with you. Was it, hey, we have to wait until our contracts are up. And, you know, if they have multiple tools, the contracts are never expiring at the same right, time. Right. Like, how did you figure out how to make that work? Yeah, I mean, it, a series of things. So, you know, you have to have incredible flexibility as a startup. And, and that even comes to the cost. Like, you're not trying to make a massive margin on your first few logos. You might even pay for them, right? You right. might pay the 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 six months they still have on 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 platform x you might give them x months free you know to prove it out do a pilot for free i mean there's there's a cost to it sometimes obviously we felt like we had a much better platform purpose built for them so it didn't take as long to prove it out to them but yeah those initial deals we have to be really flexible on terms save them money just make it hard for them to ignore us yep. right and, and once they couldn't ignore us once we were in the door you know, the, the platform was going to speak for itself at that point. But even just, you know, we had one customer come to visit us. We were at an incubator, really nice space, but they were coming to visit us. And I asked the the three other incubated companies next to me to all take their signs down. And I would put my signs up and I just looked now like I was three times as big, like I had half the floor, you know, you do what you got to do. We weren't trying to pull wool on, you know, pull the wool over anyone's eyes. But at the end of the day, it's it's difficult to break through, and you want to be creative. And yep. and and then the 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 customer service part of this. I know we all dream of building a SaaS platform where the engine's just running and the meter's just running. But at the end of the day, folks need help. You know, they're buying your platform. Sometimes they're trying to move up in their career. 
So we lean in with them. We're their partner. We're going to make sure they're successful. We do everything we can. So everything we promised, you know, is true. And to be honest, we still carry that. We we have this set of values in Sochi and the C stands for customer centric. And it's not just the brand. It's really the human that makes the decision who, you know, is is a director or a VP and they want to move up. And we want to make sure that we're kind of one of their 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 assets, their secret weapons, an extension of their team. So we lean in a lot with our customers, that which has sense. helped a lot. No, that, and and when you're when you're first starting to figure this out, did you invest in customer success and kind of that like post sales side early? Or were you still were you kind of saying, hey, let's go on and kind of on the top of the funnel, pipeline, that type of thing? Gosh, if I could go back and speak to myself early on, I think I would have built the entire customer success cycle first, maybe even before the product. Like it's so important to retain these customers. And no, we were, you know, we were a tech company that became a product company, that became a sales company, that became a marketing company, and then finally realized, oh my God, we have to be a customer success company. Now I think we were innately doing that naturally because you know you really lean in with the the early customers. Um, but as we grew, we didn't really have a process for that. Like, how do you scale that? Like, I can't be in all those calls, et cetera. And so we did that a bit late and had to go hire some some really significant talent to come in and teach us how to do that and, and build that out. And I, I certainly would think about that. If I were doing it again, I would think about that early. Well, so you, you talked about hiring. Let's let's dive into that because there's there's obviously multiple stages to your company, even from then till to now. I mean, we could we could probably talk about that just the whole time. But I'm curious, like, what does the team look like right around the time that hey, brands are starting to come to you? You're starting to get these bigger brands. You're starting to have some success here. Are, is it just you? Is it a small team and you got a bunch of engineers who are building product? Is it like what does this look like to say hey, we're going to yeah. go attack this area? They look small and scrappy and tired. <laughs> Lots <laughs> but, of but coffee. Excited, right? yeah, 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 for sure. Sleeping on the floor on a stack of t-shirts. Um, yep. Yeah, those are the good days, right? Yeah, I guess it does. I mean, depending on how early we talk about, it's it's a couple people, some engineers. If you're lucky enough to have your first salesperson. By the time we got to brands, we did. We'd hired our first salesperson. We had probably our first team of salespeople because, again, we were in a couple of verticals before that. And we had one or two in customer success and so forth. But, you know, once we got that proof uh, that, look, we have like we have product market fit. These customers are on our platform. They're succeeding. They're buying. Some of them are wanting to rebuy. We're going to go raise money. One of the first things you do, I think, with that money is go bring in talent. You know, people who have seen the story before so that you can not, you know, avoid some of the early mistakes that can really slow you down, sometimes derail you. Yeah. So that's, I think, the best use of the initial capital is to go bolster the team. Yeah. I mean, I'm interested, in, and then we can we can go kind of post-product market fit, is you talked about how you had some salespeople, even your sales team. You probably had a little bit of turnover there. How did you know who was the right person to hire? Or when you look back at it, like, and you're saying, hey, this is my first sales hire, my first couple of sales hires, you're obviously not going to go after a CRO or a, you know, some hotshot VP of sales or something like that. But you want this, you want someone who's going to go grind it out and go help you figure it out and that's everything. And while you're, while you're going and grinding it out and figuring it out, you want someone to kind of go do it with you essentially. 
For like, sure. What are you looking for? And how, like, how on earth do you find this, this needle in the haystack type person? Or yeah, people? I don't know. Sometimes they're just God sent to you, right? It, it's interesting because you're right. I don't want somebody super, super, you know, you don't want someone from Adobe, Oracle, et cetera, not because they're not highly skilled, but there's a lot of very clean processes already in place for that person that they probably don't even appreciate until they come to a, a startup. Um, yeah. You want the guy who you probably say no to because they don't have the resume, but they keep coming after you. They keep knocking on your door, you know, and then you realize, God, there's a hunger there. This this person, you know, is going to is going to be good at building, not just selling. And you got to recognize like you're in a build. So you need those intangibles. You need that grit. You got to be a good salesperson and any any history of that. They have to be very interested in your product and 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 how to make it fit and building decks and marketing it. So, yeah, I mean, I was fortunate enough to run into one of those people early on and they were in one of the verticals we were selling in and frankly basically said, hey, give this to me for a week. I'll I'll go get you a sale over here. I said, all right, go prove it. And it was incredible. Like he sold something and what would have taken me four months. So, you know, you also have to be humble and invite people that are better than you to the table. This person was clearly better than me at selling. But what was really impressive was, you know, how often they were coming around you know, knocking on the door, kind of almost trying to convince me that they were the right person. That doesn't always happen. So I feel very fortunate that yeah. that happened. Short of that, you look for evidence of that in their background. Like, again, if all you see is Oracle, Adobe, Salesforce, like they can't be your first person. Yeah, you, Like just playing the probabilities, like that's probably not good, a good fit. But if yep. you see some early stage startups, that person understands the grit and the hard work, then, then that's a better bet to make. That makes sense. So you have product market fit. You got a, you got a salesperson, or maybe you got a couple of salespeople. You're starting to you're starting to make some traction, and like what what kind of roadblocks are you starting to run into? Right, you got your product market fit. You know that there's something there, or at least you know maybe you don't like actually know it, but the signals are you're you know you're you're having repeat customers. You're getting some word of mouth yourself. Maybe sales cycles are starting to you know get a little bit lower or, or smaller. Like what, what are you starting to run into that you weren't necessarily expecting? I mean, you always, you know, there's always a, it depends. Like it depends where you start. So we started in kind of, you could say a lower mid-market segment. And, and as you start to try to move up, you run into new things, new integrations, new features, things that are going to take you a little bit longer to have. So, so having product gaps and learning how to sell ahead a little bit right? Okay. We understand you need that. That's now on the roadmap. We're going to have it by this date. It'll take us this long to onboard. So just building the motion and, and the, the expertise of how to sell ahead of a product because we needed to build some things as in this evolution, evolving space. You know, on the, on the flip side, I think you have to pay really attention to who you're selling to. Like we drank a lot of Kool-Aid early on because we were selling really fast and well to, to this bottom segment of the market. But a year later, because we were signing one-year deals, is when the data started to come in on the retention side of the house. And man, if you don't do a good job looking at the data, you could be in trouble. We could have gone a very different way. But what we realized is that two-thirds of what we were selling um, was in a segment that was really high churn. So... We obviously tried for a while to, to fix what was ailing it, but the, what was really ailing it is the problem wasn't big enough. They weren't, they didn't have enough locations to where what we were solving was really 
as valuable. Like the more locations you have, the bigger the problem it is. And so we had to, we had an inside sales team that was, you know, banging phones, making calls, doing really, really well, selling very well with a really strong value prop, but the customers were falling out at a rate that was relatively unacceptable. So after a period of trying to fix what we thought ailed them, we just realized like, okay, we're about multi-location, but there's a bottom to that. There's a floor to that, but we can't sell below X. And we had, we actually made the decision to deprecate the entire inside sales team and just go with, you know, only one third of our sales force was kind of the, the upper mid market side, but, and it was a big decision because that's like giving up two thirds of your revenue. It was a dark day, man. I'll, I'll be honest, but it, it was, it was a must. Like if you trust your data and you understand the types of things that can hurt a company, including negative retention rates, th then, you know, that's the right move. And it's, it's a bit of a restart. So we hit that button. We had confidence in the people that were selling to the upper market. We put everything behind that and we rebounded. It took us about, about a year. We never, you know, we never really lost too much pace, but lost wow. a little bit, but rebounded. We found that we got bigger deals in a ultimately more efficient sales cycle that were retaining much better. So it was the right move, but it was a difficult one to make at the time. And if I hadn't sort of just been such a data nerd myself, <laughs> I, I might not have done it. If I was trying to go with my gut, it, it scared me, but I, I went with the numbers and turned out to be the right thing to do. That's interesting. More more people I feel like would go with their gut versus the data because they don't necessarily trust data. How long you did it take you? There, Sorry, just as yeah. an aside. Yeah. The first money in this company was mine and it was like my kid's college fund. It changes your perspective a little bit. You can't just be bold and go with your gut. You got to do what's right. And, and I, I, I would ask more entrepreneurs to either put some money in or just put yourself in those shoes and make sure you still feel the same way. Like you're still making the same bet. Like when it's your kid's college fund, are you still going to go chase it? Or are you going to listen a little bit more to what's in front of you? And, and to be honest, I think that made a difference in that moment. Well, I mean, I, that's kind of some of the advice that I give to people if they're like, hey, I'm thinking about doing this idea. And I go, well, how much money have you put into it? Or, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to take out a second mortgage on your house or use your college, your, your kid's college fund, there's a different level of, you know, the, the term burn the boats and say, Hey, I'm all in. And you're, this is like, if this is the bet you're going to make, this is the bet, right? This is the one. If you could choose any of the bets that you want to make, this is it. And you start to see people who go, well, well, yeah. if other people are going to put their money in, then I'll go do it. And I'm like, well, then there's not as much risk. Because you're like, I don't really care if I win, if I lose, so what? Yeah. And, th and then that forces you, hey, you got to make a decision. Are you going to be, you know, loose and, and, and shoot from the hip or yeah. are you going to, are you going to follow the data? Really, really calculated. That, that I think set a pattern for the company We're we happen to be extremely data driven now. We probably have some level of data obesity, but you yeah. know, every KPI, everything, we look at things five different ways, make sure we really understand it before yeah. a decision's made. So how, as far as like an org size, like how big are you when this kind of realization or this insight comes about? It's a really good question. It was a little while ago, but I would probably think around maybe 40 or 50 people. Okay. So enough to be like, all right, we're going to make this shift. And we also have to spend quite a bit of time to like get everybody on the same page and yes. make sure everybody's like understanding what's new role clarity and making sure that we dot all our I's and cross all our T's. 
how long did it take you from the time that you had the insight to the time that you actually made the decision to 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 nix the the sales team? Mm. Three months, give or take, right? Okay. Um, so the- because we because because we didn't look at the data, like we didn't wait a year and look at it. We started watching it, right? And then when the data got loud enough, from that point you know, three months of trying different approaches or thinking about different solutions um, only to realize like there's um, that, that that's the right decision. Now that's realizing it's the right decision. And then, and then, and then shifting the boat, you know, three and at least another three months, if not six. Right. So the whole thing, you know, all in all, from the first time we realized it to the end, till what we finally completely shifted around is probably six months to a year to completely make the shift. I bet yeah. that was some tough nights, right? Some tough oh, weekends. My I mean, and just telling your Stomach board, churning. hey, by the way, we've been doing it at this rate, and now it's going to go like this for a minute. I mean, how do you, yeah, it wasn't great. Yeah. But what I got to say is like, look, guys, I'm in it with you. My money's in it with you. I promise you it's the right thing. Here's the pipeline on this side. We have a decent pipeline. We'll now grow it. Like, we had some safety nets, right? We weren't just putting, we weren't just putting the brakes on. We're continuing right. a segment of the business and then putting more gas on that part. So, so it worked and, and it made sense and it was hard to refute. And of course we were asked, Hey, can you fix it first? Which we had already tried before coming to the decision that we, we really can't fix the problem of the problem's not big enough. So yep. we moved on. That's interesting. And so when you make this move, you are, it's not, it's not like we're stopping and we're moving over here. It's that we're all going in this direction. We're just going to stop this piece and we're going to kind of continue to go with the, you know, kind of this, this horse and we're going to bet on this horse here. So it's not that you're, you're opening up, but essentially what you're doing is, is you're saying like this whole story is, is you're just kind of going faster and faster and faster up and up and up towards the enterprise, right? The bigger the company, because yes. the bigger the company, the more locations, the more locations they get to see, you know, they probably feel the pain more, hence see the value more so on and so forth. Yes. Yes. Bigger deals. And so all of a sudden you get to this point where you're saying, Hey, let's go bet on here. What had to change internally from like a go to market org chart? Because that shift to say, okay, like it was, I, I get it. You're super, super hard. You got to fire a bunch of friends. You got to get rid of this whole thing. There's this whole shift here. But that still means that, okay, now we're going to reinvest and double down on this segment, new people in, are you hiring, you know, C-levels above VPs? Are you hiring SVPs above VPs? Are you hiring VPs above directors? Like all of a sudden we're starting to kind of professionalize this segment to go to the enterprise because this is a lot of people who know what they're doing. Like that, when you go to the enterprise, there's no room yeah. to mess around. Like we're, we're, yeah. we're going I mean, to invest over the top here. For sure. So, so look, let's, so I've always liked a portfolio theory on sales. Like I need different teams doing different things because sometimes something's up, sometimes down. I like the concept of these safety nets, right? So early on, remember we had agency, we didn't deprecate that, that kept going. We had property, we didn't deprecate that, that kept going. We got into brands, we had the small brands and the bigger brands. Now we kind of have like four go to market motions. I'm deprecating this one. I still have the three, right? And we're still a sales team. We're still a marketing team. We're still, you know, we still have these functions. We just point them differently. And so now as you move into other things, whether that's going into a more specific segment or going more upstream, 
for each one, you're, it's a build, right? So now, so I'm going into regulated markets. Okay, I need someone that understands that, uh, a marketer that knows that, uh, a, an SC that knows that. I'm going in bigger into enterprise, like you said. I can't just, you know, I got some folks that could do that. They can move up. But generally speaking, that's a new language. That's a new motion. There's procurement. There's other things to deal with. Let me go get somebody that, that's done that before. It, it's always a faster path to add good talent. It's also a risk to add good talent, right? So sometimes you elevate your talent that you think is ready, and sometimes you bring somebody in from the outside. But for me, and I think what's been part of making it successful is, you know, you build these portfolios and you build these business units, right? And so any one of them may struggle or you might want to build a new one that's going to struggle. You got the rest that are still going and, and balancing things out for you. So even, even when we deprecated that inside team, what made it easy is we had this mindset that we had different go-to-market motions. And so now the enterprise becomes a new one. And you're yep. right. It needs new talent. It needs a new formula. It needs a new value proposition, a new approach, a new deck, a new way to market, a new way to meet them. A whole, it's it's kind of like launching a new startup within the startup. Right. But frankly, we love that. I mean, that's, I think it's helped us attract gritty people who love the startup world. And even though we're at the size right now, you, you know, we continue to have that mentality because inside the company, we've, we've got those, those, those go to markets that all each individually feel still yeah. small and scrappy and, and like we're in a build mode. So that, that's how we've been do, able to do it successfully. And, and, and frankly, been able to have some failures along the way, right? The name of the game is to take some bets, especially once you raise VC money. The whole model is take that money get a competitive advantage by going a little faster, maybe being a little bit looser on, on some of the efficiencies and whatnot, open new markets up, and then figure out how to be efficient. And so we did that. We took that capital and we built a bunch of different business units and took some risks and many of them panned out, but the few that didn't, we made sure to watch the data and, and be real with ourselves, that even if we loved it and probably could solve it if we put everything into it, that sometimes that wasn't, that wasn't the right yeah. move. So you make the you make this shift and you say, hey, let's go to the enterprise. And you start to build out this team. What what was the initial go-to-market motion that you were using for this enterprise play? Well, and you have to remember, like, even your audience, when they hear the word enterprise, if you had 10 people, they might define it 10 well, different ways. Larger companies, right? You're continuing yeah. to go up and up. Maybe not so the McDonald's yeah. of the world's yet. And but. I feel like we're still, right. So we're still, there's, there's, each step has a step above it. So you kind of take it incrementally. And incrementally, it doesn't feel so, so foreign because incrementally, you're still going to the, generally the same events. You're publishing in the same places. You know, your go-to-market and your marketing doesn't change a lot. But when you get to true enterprise, there is an ecosystem around them that is a little bit different, right? So you start to look at the Gartners and the Foresters and those types of influencing things. You start to look at a lot more relationship building, a lot more specific events or kind of more of the wine and dine approach. And so it's just a different seller. It's a different motion. You're marketing in different ways. You're putting out more research that, that's being more valuable to them, more, more helpful to them. Uh, you're not just sending a sales guy to sell a product. Like, you're yeah. establishing yourself, yourself as, a, as a value add to the organization and then surrounding yourself by others that will echo that for you, that, that this company is valuable, this company is doing these things that are new. 
and it takes a minute and then you feel like you're back at the beginning where you're starving for that first logo again that one person to take the leap so you do all the same things you did before you cut your price you give them extra things you put your arms around them you really lean in it, it again if you're not a build guy you don't survive through all this because yeah. you feel like at some point you should be out of this but if you're trying to open new markets every time you do you threw yourself right back in it. So is there anybody outside of yourself that was it like pivoting and kind of making all these transitions? I mean, you're hiring people for these different departments and these different plays. And, you know, you had to make some tough decisions about letting one team go and then you're building out another team. Do you have someone who just kind of goes, hey, I'm a Swiss Army knife and I'm just going to adapt to that? Or is it, hey, now that this kind of, newer ish enterprise play like yeah we we've staffed it but maybe it wasn't staffed with every single a player that we can think of we're gonna go get some new blood in or transition people like how did you think about that so from the perspective of who do i bounce these ideas off of i mean hopefully by this point you've you've hired a team that you respect and love and and want to do business with and you know that is my first advisory board right i, I my team and I, every Monday, every Friday, we have set meetings. We've done it for like five years, 10 years, where we meet together and we just talk. What are we thinking? Where are we going? What's happening in the business? They know everything about the business that I know. And and so I share that with them. And that's, you know, that's what's important about who you put around you. Outside of that, of course, you know, you surround yourself with advisors. At this point, you probably have investors. They They have other people that have done this before that are gone to the enterprise. It doesn't hurt if you're in a fund that focuses on businesses like yourselves, like enterprise SaaS companies, like our latest investor. That's kind of solely what they do. So now I have 50 other live companies that are doing this. They have resources, talent, et cetera. And you have to learn to be really good. Again, humble yourself, leverage other people who are better than you. Bring in into the company when you can. And when you can't, just certainly get that advice. So, so we've done all that almost at every phase. Just now, we just hired a, a new president and CRO who was, you know, incredible at selling to the enterprise and, 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 and building a, an engine for that. And so we decided we wanted that talent in the company. So look, as CEO, you're, you're, you're setting the vision, you're raising the money, you're bringing in the talent. That third one, if you can't do that one, if you don't know when to do it or can't bring in the right people, you'll hit a wall at some point. Can't do it alone. Yeah. the I remember the first time I was VP of sales and then eventually I was CEO. It was, you're, you don't realize that you're a top recruiter. <laughs> you are recruiting as your number one job. And obviously CEO keep money in the, in the, you know, the business afloat, but recruiting is, is the thing. Like there is no other yeah. thing because people are the, you know, the thing that make the engine go. Well, especially if, if you are the CEO and the people you recruit are literally over an entire segment of the entire organization, it's not yeah. like you just hired over here and you hired wrong. Yeah. So it's so important to get it right. And it makes it so nerve wracking, to be honest, it, it is it is one of the hardest part of the job. What what kind of tips do you have for for founders or for, you know, go to market leaders? Like, how do you get how do you get these hires right? Outside of, you know, the, the easy answers is, oh, you should, you know, look in your network, but like, where are you sourcing these people? I mean, you have some great investors. You've been in the space for a long time, so you have a, a good network, but like, 
you know, just because you have a good network doesn't mean that people are available or that they have someone for you at the right time type of thing. Like what kind of tips do you have to like get this right to get these? Cause so much of this is get the right people on the bus and then you kind of get the hell out of the way for them to do what they were hired to do. I, I don't want to dodge the question, but it, it really, my answer would depend on what we're hiring. If I'm hiring a C-level executive, my formula might be different than if I'm hiring a, a salesperson or, or, or a customer success person, et cetera. At the C-level, look, obviously resume accomplishments, references, not the ones they give you, the ones you find. Like, please, yeah. if, you're, if you get a list of references, feel free to spend time on that. You know what they're going to say. So just make the assumption that they're going to speak really highly of the person. The difficult part is, is going beneath that. And, and I, I believe you've got to get to know the person. You have to invest. First of all, you have to invest hours in a search. But then when you get it down to a few people, you have to spend hours, if not weeks, with the person. If they're not willing to do that, that's fine. I know that's asking a lot. But you've got to get to know them. I mean, at the end of the day, th this is your brother or sister in arms. I mean, you're, you're, you're in the trenches together. It can't just be based on a resume or even someone else's word. You have to have that feeling that you have the right partner there. Okay. So it's a bit different, I believe, than when you hire for some other roles. Uh, but no, I don't have a formula and I really wish I did. And I know there's books on this and there's tests you can give people. And <laughs> um, I'll, I'll just say like, for me, if I get to know them and I, there's just certain things I need to hear, there's certain questions I ask them that will help me understand how they think through things. And, and I ask sort of hypothetical questions. How would you deal with this situation? What have you had that, you know, and you just want to see how, how they, you know, what their demeanor is, you know, what their um, level for difficulty is, you know, if things break, do they coil up in the corner or are they the first one to be like, okay, yeah. let's sweep it up and let's go. Like, yeah. You know, there, there's there's an element to that um, that's important. As we move upstream and we need to bring certain qualities into the company, it does get a little bit clearer. Like yeah. in our latest hire, I knew we needed someone that really knew how to build a sales engine, understood revenue operations, understood sales enablement, understood the enterprise segment and that motion, the full customer cycle. And that comes with experience and that comes with having seen that bef before. So it, in some ways, it gets a little bit clearer as you get bigger because you start to get more specialized in what you need people to do. Yep. But yeah, I've, one of these days, whoever cracks the, the actual code, the hiring perfectly will do yeah. well in life. Yes. I, I, I hope that I hope that to meet that person because I don't think it's me. <laughs> I don't think yeah. it's me. Yeah. yeah one of the th big things that I always look for is detail in their answers. So whether it's what, you know, the hypotheticals or what, what, you know, give me an example of this. I really look for the details to try to figure out like, do they know what they're talking about or are they just kind of blowing smoke? I'm you curious know, in your perspective from, if we go back a little bit in the early er, early ish days when, you know, you don't have a C-level team, maybe you don't have a full built out VP level team and you got to hire these director level people, the ICs, maybe they're in departments that you don't have a tremendous amount of experience about. I know I get, I get hired all the time to help hire VPs of sales because founder thinks that they're going to, they're like, I have no idea what to look for. The guy can say probably way more than I'll understand. And it all sounds great. And so I look at it and go, what, how, how did you overcome some of that? I mean, I'm sure that you, you made some mistakes along the way, but like, 
how do you try to reduce some of those higher mistakes just from experience that you've had? Yeah, if I don't have the experience in that department, yeah, Alex, I will hand you a pen and ask you to teach me. Like that will be the entire, that will be the entire interview. Teach me, teach me how to build this unit. Teach me how to build this segment. Teach me how, what your process is, what your pillars are, what's important. How would you build this from scratch? And I would send them to a whiteboard and I would sit there and let them go and, and hold class for an hour. And, and if I walk away knowing exactly what the hell I'm looking for and what to do, then that, that's the person and I hire them. Most of the times you don't. People are not very good teachers. But if this is a brand new, like if it's something I don't know about, then they have to be the one that knows it. <laughs> and yeah. they have to be the really good yeah. communicator on why things should be how they should be. Um, yeah. And so that, to me, that teach me. That's it. They do it. If they can do it, they're probably hired. That's interesting. No, I, I, I like that. I, I'm going to have to use that one. I want to I go back into selling. And I know one of your big keys that you focus on is really knowing your target, knowing who you're selling to, understanding, you know, what's their tech stack look like internally, characteristics. I like that is that is to me that's that's even just like go to market 101 because if you don't know any of that like how the hell do you make the actual right message and say the right things. But one of the things that you we had talked about in the past was being valuable and as a, mm -hmm. as a salesperson or really just being a part of the organization to be valuable, whether it's CS, sales, marketing, like just being really, really valuable beyond the, you know, hey, let me know what questions you have and I'll get back to you type of thing. Totally. How, how do you actually be valuable in a way that shows we want your business? We're going to win this. We are the best. You should choose us. How, how do you actually do that? By remembering that on the other side, there's a human that also has a career and a family and a, and a goal and a trajectory that they want to meet. And when you start thinking about that way, you start thinking, how can I help that person? How can you help them be that decision maker, be a hero at work? You know, understand what's important to their career trajectory. Is it saving money for the business, solving a workflow, delivering analytics, you know, taking the company into a, a new era like AI and delivering solutions there? If you can paint a picture where partnering with your company will benefit their personal career journey, you might not say those words, but if you can paint that picture, I, I believe you have a massive advantage in the sales yeah. cycle. And so, you know, we teach people, you know, first of all, be customer centric, you know, be, be human first and then be consultative, be valuable. Don't waste people's time. But that's not just showing you features and buttons. We'll get there. I got to know where you're trying to go, Alex. What, what are you trying to build? What, what's your responsibility in the organization? What are you being looked at? What would make you the hero and help you take the next step in your career? Again, I don't know that I'm asking those specific questions because it just depends on the rapport I've built with you. Of course. So I might not lead that way, but ultimately it's what I'm trying to find out. And I think if, if you're that kind of seller and you can make that kind of connection and ultimately show the person a path to you delivering that kind of value, man, is it hard for them to go somewhere else? Yeah. I mean, I, I look at it in, you know, it's, it's selling to the person, understanding the human component to it. Cause it's, you're not selling to a company, you're selling to people, right? Like a, a like a live person that eats and breathes and sleeps. And I think that if you can understand them and then I, I, you know, the interesting thing is, is when you start to know your target, 
and you understand like the role and you understand the department and you understand the company and you understand the buying decisions. Like obviously those are like must do's as well. But what you'll notice is those people in those roles tend to be similar in all the different companies. And so you start to see those patterns. And so if they're saying, oh, well, if I sell to, and I'm making this up, the director of marketing at such and such of a company, right? Let's say I sell to a Mac McDonald's. Well, I bet somebody who is at Burger King and Wendy's and Taco Bell and so on and so forth all probably fit some similar characteristics in order to be able to aid. And that's where that like repeatability in sales really comes from. Is that something that you guys, is that something that you like recruit for to see like, hey, can you articulate that in that type of seller? Is that something that you teach in your onboarding? Like that is such a, a, a key that I know that is core to you. But like, can you teach how to do these types of things? Or do you think that you have to recruit for it? Well, you can recruit for it. I think you can try to figure out if this person is truly a relationship person, if they hold those right. philosophies. And then you can train for it. I'm not sure you can teach for it, to be honest. Yeah. Like if it wasn't there, if the innateness of being able to make that human connection, having the empathy for the human turned out not to be there, I don't know if it's teachable because yeah. we've certainly had some folks that haven't really grasped it as well, but 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 we understand it. And look, it, it makes all the logical sense in the world because that person is also playing the probabilities, not going to stay with that brand forever. They're going to go to another one and another one. And if you're that person in their lives, they, they bring you along, bring right? Along. So it makes a ton of sense. It's logical. You would think everyone would almost see it as 101, like you talked about the blueprinting part being 101. Man, even that doesn't always get done perfectly well. You yeah. still have people trying to skip steps on that when it's so logical that like you should know everything about the account, the tech stack, and, and yet, right? And yet, so yes, you try to hire for it. You try to design your questions and whatnot to, to seek that out. And then you certainly train for it. Don't know that you can teach it. I just, I'm not convinced yeah. yet. I, hey, if you figure it out, let me know. Cause I, I'm a, I, I have to recruit for it. So yeah, exactly. if you can teach it, you don't have enough money and time to be able to do it, to do it, I sure. guess. Is that yeah. um, I'm, I'm curious when you kind of look back at the journey and obviously you guys are still growing and, and the company's doing well. What would you say is like a one or two kind of missteps or if you had to do it again, you'd change it up outside of maybe the, the inside sales team of the, the smaller yeah. companies? You know, this one's hard for me because everyone's always going to talk about, oh, you made this mistake. But we all know that the mistakes are part of the growing pains and, and right. just part of the journey. And so it's hard for me to even, you know, I like to joke like, yeah, we don't. So long as we learn from it, they're not mistakes. They're just part of the journey, right? Like we don't make mistakes. I, I, I listen, I go fast personally. I push and, and people will say, hey, you're going too fast. And I don't think that's a mistake or a misstep. It's just about the phase that you're in. So you have to understand that when you're early, you kind of have to slow down, find that market fit, really lean in. At some point, when you take the VC money, let's say you do that, you got to understand the phase you're now in too. Like that model Put aside this last year because I know now they've all flipped their tune. But traditionally, that model is take our money, burn it, get an unfair advantage, go get a lot of market share. Once you have a good critical mass, start working on the efficiency part of the business. Some people listening to this be like, oh, that's not the model. That's the model, right? Otherwise, if that's not the model, you don't need all that money. Right. Like, just slow grow it. But if we're going to go fast, 
we're going to break some eggs and that's that's okay uh, as long as you're looking at data and being responsible so there's this big phase of i'm breaking eggs and i know i'm breaking eggs and it's okay and then you get to a phase of okay i got to start solving the efficiency quotient so yeah we've had missteps i think if i like the honest thing is if i were to do it all again i would just think of the full cycle like all the way through to how you retain them and grow that customer and not just sell them a product and that's that's something that took us a while we're, we're incredible at it now we've won some awards for our customer success so we we've made up for for early years but that's that's probably one i would re redo all the others you know i'll take those scars yeah well, it's learning from mistakes, and I think that's the right way. I, I agree with you as far as taking VC money. I think that's there's it. You run your business differently if you take VC money than if you don't. Like I, that is just a, a fundamentally different change. Yeah, so. there's just an awareness there of the phase yeah. that you're in. You should really understand it, define it for yourself, understand that it doesn't last forever, and there'll be a time you have to come out of it. But as long as you know what phase you're in, then then you'll you'll set your standards the right way of the types of mistakes that you can make. I know, I know that CS was one of the ones that you pointed to, but when you, when you think about the kind of the growth of the company, is there an area from an organization or a people perspective that you would have said, Hey, I would have hired for this role or this department earlier. Obviously CS that we talked a lot about that, but is there anything else like finance, sales engagement, something like that? Yes. I mean, all, all of the above. All of the above. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I always felt like I brought those leaders and functions on too late like only when it was really painful it was like oh my god this is crazy i can't keep doing this let me go find somebody and, yeah. and so yeah there's a design to this that if you're surrounded by smart people that have done it before they could lay out a blueprint of the type of people you need and what stage you need it i didn't i didn't have that i frankly i wasn't i, I should have been smarter to to go get that advice sooner but it was always kind of like when it felt painful then then i went and i made those investments, even just sales hiring, right? Who you hire, how you hire, what you're hiring for, what the qualities are. We made a bunch of mistakes early on. I would urge your audience to go sit down with people that are great at that, learn about that, make the, you know, make better decisions early. It will save you a lot of time. Yep. It's always a, a little bit of a tough one because you, when you look back, you know, it's easy for me to say, okay, well, you know, you're 11 years into doing this. You have millions and millions and millions of dollars and, and all these different customers. And it's like, okay, what hire would you make earlier? And it's easy to look back and say, well, I'd make this hire, that hire. Is there anything that just because you've been in the space for long enough, and I know that you talk to a bunch of other startups as well, you've been in the, in the investing side too. How do you how do you figure out how to make the hires faster that you should have, right? Like, how do you figure that out in order to say like, or or maybe the answer is, is you don't, right? Maybe the answer is, is you make the hires when you do because the pain is to the point where you can't take it anymore, and that's the trigger that's just like go get them. But is there something yeah. when you when you're when you're saying, hey, I would hire them earlier? You're essentially also saying, well, I would have hired them when the pain wasn't as acutely painful as it is. I would have been like sort of kind of painful, not, oh, my God, my arm's shooting off the, my body or something. And the reason I say that is sometimes when you when you only hire for the pain you're having, you're just trying to solve that pain. And you might just hire for that moment. And really what you should do if you're being a little bit more thoughtful is feel the pain early, see it coming, and then hire beyond it. Not yeah. five, 10 steps beyond it, because then you then you overhired. You don't have the person that you need for your phase now. 
but don't just hire for your phase now. You, you need the next phase or two also, right? And if they've seen that, they could be helping you build the infrastructure now to avoid some of the pain and get more out of you know, the team for those next couple of phases. That's a beautiful science. And there's consultants that make a lot of money to sit down and design that with you. Yeah. Here's when, here's how, here's what critical mass. It's hard as a founder that's in the throes of the company to, to, to do that. I would just say like when you start to get that spidey sense, don't wait till there's a mountain of pain because yeah. then it could also influence the decisions you make of who you hire. When you start to get that feeling that like, okay, I kind of need this partner, start thinking about that and think about it for the next two phases and the type of person you'd want to recruit to help you through that. No, I like that. That makes sense. One, one more question then we can, and we can wrap up. I know we're getting close to time here. When you, when you think about on the flip side, I mean, you've had, uh, you have had 11 plus awesome years of doing this, right? I can, I, I can still see the energy and the excitement in your face. Whenever we talk, like, you're just like, Hey, this is, you still love what you do. What are some of the best bets that you've ever made for this company that you can be like, I'm really happy with that one. I'm really proud of myself for that one. Or that one really worked out. Like if I had to do it again, like I would definitely double down on that one. So, so Alex, so I'm running a marketing technology company. I have no marketing background. So the subject matter itself is not what drives me. Okay. And for different people, it's different things. The, the, the build and, and what the future holds and how I can transform it is, is what I wake up for every day. And so every one of the bets that I've made, even the ones that have gone terribly wrong, were so exciting and fun. So long as I, I build the business responsibly and in a way where I'm not putting all my eggs in one basket, then I feel like I can continue to, to earn the right to take those bets and have that exhilarating part of how I can grow it. So I talked to my board about how we can do 50% growth next year. I'm going home thinking like, how do I you know, grow this in order of magnitude? How do I 10X the business? And, and there's so much stuff now with AI and, and, and what we're doing with that, that you know, we're, we're looking to transform in the entire relationship our customers have, frankly, with software as a category now. Like it's just things like that, but you only earn the right to do that, to continue to evolve and, and place new bets when you've made some successful, right? So now yeah. that we have, I've made one successful, I made a second successful, I made a third, then a fourth, then turned out the third wasn't, so I closed it down. Then I went with a fifth and a sixth, and the seventh is a bit shaky, so I go on to the eighth, but I'm watching the seventh. You, you follow me? Like, yeah, it's yeah. just like life. You just build on it. And if you've earned that, you've put that safety net under you to try the next thing. Then it keeps it really exciting and fun. And I, it's just how, how I think of the build. I love it. I love it. I'm curious, before, before as we're kind of like wrapping up, do you have a, a favorite book or a favorite resource that you tell people like, hey, this is going to be really helpful as far as like along your journey, whether it's about sales, transitioning out of founder-led sales, growing your go-to-market side of the house, pivoting. Like what, what, what kind of resources do you recommend? Honestly, man, I knew you were going to ask me this. And I'm, I always hate this part because I'm, I'm not the most avid reader. I, I skim things. I'll, I, you know, I just, so I don't sit down with books. It's not my favorite thing. I respect people that write them. But I feel like by the time I'm reading it, <laughs> everything has evolved a lot. And so yeah. I like to get real-time advice. I like to be across the table or at, at the bar with someone that I respect that does that thing way better than me. 
you know, I need people at a table that are just smarter than me. And, 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 and so I, for me, I much prefer real-time advice, real-time situations. It's not to say I never skim a book or, or, or watch, or, you know, listen to a, a blog. I, I do a podcast, but, but yeah, I don't feel like I'm the way I learn is not through absorption of, of reading materials. It's through interaction with, yeah. with people that have lived it and breathed it, hopefully recently. And, and that's, that's how I get my, my best. It. Talking to somebody live. I mean, selfishly, I, I get to learn from every single guest that I have on the show. It's just, I mean, it's just, I, I hear it straight from the horse's mouth. It's, it's super yeah. fun. Um, and people think, I, I hear people you. think, oh, but you have a network. Honestly, the best people I've talked to, I've just reached out to and said, hey, man, look, we maybe we know somebody in person or maybe you don't know me but here's what i'm doing i'd love to pick your brain you'd be amazed how much these people also like to transfer knowledge that way yeah right so yeah. be bold just go ask someone for 20 minutes of their time buy them a lunch buy them a coffee yeah. uh, you'll get a lot out of it powerful how does how does the audience get more of you boy uh, I got four kids and a wife, and there's not a lot of me to give with running the company, but uh, I am on LinkedIn. That's probably my, my network okay. of choice, LinkedIn, you know, backslash Afif Corey. That's we'll probably the best way. I'm not very active on the other platforms right now. Okay. Uh, but, but I, like others, if you reach out and you want to chat, I, I am open to that. So happy to hear from your audience and That's share awesome. whatever I can. Perfect. Any, any last remaining wisdom that, that you care to part ways before we break? Boy, well, I would just say I have a theory that that vertical technologies do better than horizontal technologies. They don't get as big, but if you're building something new, think about a narrow market set. You can always expand. We did. You just heard the story. Um, but start narrow. I, I think it helps you focus. It helps you really be valuable to a specific group faster. That's that's some advice I would give that I think is very valuable. Is Stay narrow, nail it, and then move on to the next one, right? Keep earning that next, that next sales team. Beautiful. I love it. We, we're going to have to have you on again when, when you exit or go IPO or whatever it is that is the ultimate destination. I can't wait to, to, to learn more about the journey and, and to have you on again. Thanks so much for joining us. It, Alex. Thank you for having me, man. Great conversation. I appreciate it, Fee. Talk to you later. See ya. All right. Take care. That's it for this week's episode of From Start to Scale. Be sure to click that subscribe button and follow us so you don't miss our next episode. I'm Alex Newman. See you next time.